It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the history of the Netherlands, where we explore the events and characters that over time have transformed a swamp into an amazing modern marvel. Episode 26, Beautiful Burgundian Bureaucracy and the Salty Citizens of Ghent. Philip the Good may have dreamed of wearing a single crown, but while that was not the case, he was just a man wearing many different hats. And if you've ever seen someone wearing more than one hat at a time, you'd know how difficult and awkward that can be. Philip brought in administrative and economic changes to try and fuse the many different bureaucracies of his lands into one. This led to early meetings between representatives from all of Philip's lowland domains, and these signify the emergence of an early parliamentary body, the Estates General. This will become a major factor in the years to come. However, although Philip was somewhat flexible when it came to handling his various provinces, it cost him a fortune to do so. This was most risky in his wealthiest territory, Flanders, and the stability he had sought since the Bruges Revolt was shattered when Ghent, his largest city, took its turn to go into open and violent revolt. Once more, Philip would have to temporarily abandon his role as loving and fatherly prince, put on his hat of vengeful lord, and once more crush thousands of his subjects. He would make another joyous entry, exactly as he had 15 years prior in Bruges, and this time force the subdued people of Ghent to recognize his headpiece of haughty, honorable homage, the loving, benevolent prince once more. As we spoke about in the last episode, after the Treaty of Arras in 1435, Philip the Good was busy attempting to win himself a promotion and be elevated to the status of king within the Holy Roman Empire. But he wasn't content with being merely the king of Friesland or king of Brabant. He wanted a title which covered all of his lands. Philip may have been one flesh and blood man, but he was a man with many different jobs. He was the Duke of Burgundy, the Count of Imperial Burgundy, the Duke of Brabant, Count of Flanders, Count of Hanno, Holland and Zeeland, Count of Namur, Governor of Luxembourg, etc. etc. Although the lands he ruled were, with the exception of the two Burgundies, mostly geographically connected, there was no single unified Burgundian state, just many different entities, each with their own particular and sometimes competing laws, customs, languages, economies, and institutions, all of which happened to have the same person at the top of them. The challenge the Duke of Burgundy faced was to try and break the local power structures which had developed in these individual regions and bring them under a single ducal administration, under his control. So, and try to contain your excitement here, but we're going to give a quick overview of how the Burgundian administrative apparatus took shape under Philip the Good. Given the sheer number of territories which he ruled, the details here get very complex very quickly, and as fascinating as layers of late medieval lowland bureaucracy can be, this is a rabbit hole that we frankly don't want to jump too far down, and you probably don't want to either. But if you are really interested in this, then please acquire a copy of Magnanimous Dukes and Rising States by Robert Stein, or another good one, Philip the Good, The Apogee of Burgundy by Richard Vaughan. And go nuts. We did. And now we have gone nuts. At the top of everything was obviously the Duke himself. As much as Philip might have enjoyed having great parties and being surrounded by good food and great music and 
beautiful women, he was still actively involved in the ruling of his own territories in terms of diplomacy and military and administration. One of the root problems which Philip faced was that it just wasn't possible for him to be in all of the territories he ruled at the same time. Although he could and did move his court around, it was never going to be possible for the wheels of state in his various areas to continue rolling if they required the Duke himself to be physically present. As we have seen in previous episodes, one way Philip dealt with this was to send his wife, Isabella, to represent him in his stead. Another tactic was what we saw him do in Holland, where he appointed a studholder or a placeholder, a person who would act as his representative in exchange for a handsome salary and who would, in theory at least, promote his interests in that region. Given the power of this position, it was necessary for Philip to send somebody trustworthy and loyal to him to act as his studholder. As such, it was common for the Duke to appoint administrators from one part of his domains to act as Stoudhana in another. As Blockmans and Prevenir point out, quote, the Dukes were more and more inclined to seek supra-regional integration of their administrative corps. To the Dukes, personal loyalty was the highest criterion of administrative surface, and foreigners, that is, officials native to one principality who were serving in another, were expected to promote the interests of the central state rather than regional interests, end quote. We saw this in Holland and Zeeland, where Philip appointed Hugo van Lannoy, a Fleming, to act as his studholder there, and where people from Flanders or Hanno would almost continuously be appointed to that position through to the end of the century. The Duke also interfered at the provincial level by restructuring the provincial councils, and the chambers of accounts, the administrative bodies responsible for auditing and keeping track of finances. Chambers of accounts already existed in Dijon, responsible for the two Burgundies, in Lille, responsible for Flanders, Artois, Hanoi, and Picardy, in Brussels for Brabant, Limburg, and Luxembourg, and in 1445 an extra one was created in The Hague to take care of Holland and Zeeland. Many of the positions within these institutions were filled with administrators from Burgundy proper, often people who had served his family the longest. The idea was to try to stamp out the factionalism within the individual territories, which had led to so much violence and destruction during the many civil wars and uprisings that we have seen. From now on, the only loyalty that mattered was that towards Philip himself. Another change Philip made was to establish a new ducal council, which would become known as the Grand Conseil, the Chroterad, or the Great Council. The Great Council was to act as the highest legal court within the Burgundian lands and would deal with ducal laws and administration. But perhaps more importantly and more worryingly if you were, say, a stubborn city alderman who enjoyed the great power your position gave you, the Great Council would also act as the final court of appeals over local and regional councils. In this respect, the Great Council would replace the Parlement of Paris, which had previously acted as court of appeals for Philip's French subjects. Its creation would thus also strengthen Philip's personal separation from France. Throughout the Low Countries, there was a mishmash of various local and regional laws which had developed over the centuries, and we have seen how much trouble could be caused when local administrations were taken over by one partisan group, say the Hooks in Holland, who would then make things very difficult for their COD rivals or vice versa. But now, if there was a dispute between parties in Holland or Zeeland or wherever, they could appeal to the Great Council to make a final judgment in the matter. In this way, the Great Council was able to interfere in local matters which cities and their urban magistrates had fought long and hard for the right to control. This led to sporadic outbreaks of violence, such as what we saw in the Bruges Revolt from 1436 to 38 
when the ducally appointed sheriff was murdered. This would continue to lead to a lot of resentment further down the road. The creation of this new central body and the appointment of all these Burgundian administrators created a whole new professional bureaucracy. No longer were people simply appointed to top positions because of their noble birth. Rather, they were chosen because of their competence and, significantly, their loyalty. Having said that, it took training, education, and study to be able to pursue the administrative career path. By 1463, the Council of Holland would be half comprised of noblemen and half of university-trained bureaucrats. Even though most of Philip's lands were now Dutch-speaking, French was the language of the Burgundian administration, and the provincial councils would correspond with the central authorities in French. This led to a bureaucracy which was somewhat detached from what was going on at ground level. To turn once again to Wim Blockman's, quote, As the Burgundian state expanded, it attracted increasing numbers of administrators who had a stake in its health and growth. At the same time, the chasm between the Burgundian bureaucracy and their subjects, who continued to think strongly in local and regional terms, continued to widen. End quote. At the top of this bureaucracy stood a man we met last episode, Nicholas Rowlin, the Duke's Chancellor, who would serve in that role for 40 years. It is important to remember that this was still arguably a mafia-style state, with a culture of trying to get ahead on an extremely hierarchical social ladder built on family and personal relationships. However, as Robert De Niro's characters have often showed us throughout the years, upward mobility was possible. Nicholas Rolin had come from a bourgeois family, but as he moved further up the ranks and showed his abilities, he was given a lordship by Philip as a reward. Other members of the Duke's inner circle, such as his Chamberlain Antoine de Croix, whose family had a long line of noble blood and were still very much believers that this made them better than everybody else, did not particularly like people from such common backgrounds as Rolin being allowed into their ranks. Jealousies and rivalries therefore abounded in the context of this clash of classes. The Duke's administrators weren't always paid particularly well, which left the whole system open to all kinds of corruption. If you were able to get into a nice position, well, there were plenty of opportunities and incentives to pocket cash here and there. For example, when a bunch of people were banished from Rotterdam after a revolt there in 1439, a local official, who also happened to be the treasurer of Holland, allowed them to return to the city in exchange for cash payment directly into his own pockets. Nicholas Rolin himself became fabulously wealthy throughout his career by taking all sorts of bribes, like the one we saw him take last week from the French king. Keeping in mind that Rolin will end up being disgraced, Chastelaine wrote of his profiteering, quote, He acquired from all this such an amazing, inestimable advantage that there are no words to describe it, and in one's heart one can barely believe it because it was so astonishing, end quote. So whilst there were rules and laws and systems like we've seen all over the Burgundian state, money had a tendency to overrule everything. And although there were fantastic amounts of cash going around, which made Philip the richest prince in Western Europe, lots of it mysteriously disappeared and the state itself always somehow ended up close to broke. As a result, Philip often found himself needing to borrow money from his subjects, it is estimated that during the 1440s, almost half of the Duke's income in Flanders came from subsidies paid to the Duke by the people of Flanders. This was an important way in which the local representative bodies, the estates, were able to keep a check on their lord, because if they were displeased, they could still deny his requests for aid. So, despite Philip's attempts to counter this by having loyalists in those provincial positions, and to strangle the regional power blocks in favor of a more centralized regime, there was a continual balancing act going on between the interests of the provincial estates and those of the Duke and his council. Indeed, 
some of the centralization policies taken to bring the territories of the Low Countries closer together were done so at the behest of those estates themselves, such as the introduction of a common currency, called the Fearlander. Fearlander means four lander, so in reference to the big four lands which Philip ruled, Flanders, Holland, Hanno, and Brabant. One of the big issues facing the provinces, and which impacted their ability to trade with one another, was that there were many different currencies in circulation. There were often wild fluctuations in the value of these currencies when rulers would manipulate them by minting new coins with lower quantities of precious metals with the aim of enriching themselves, something which John the Fearless and Philip the Good had both done to great effect. The most important currency in the Low Countries was that of Flanders, the Groot. Before agreeing to accept Philip the Good as their ruler, the big towns of Holland and Brabant had demanded that they would share a currency with Flanders. The estates of Holland and Brabant then got together in 1431 to discuss how this single currency might work. When it was introduced, Philip had to promise that he would not debase the value of the coin for the next 20 years, which would bring in a period of monetary stability. The Ordinance, to bring in the Fearlander, published in late 1433, states, quote, We, considering that one of the principal needs of all good polities, on which the public welfare of both prince and people is based, is to have a sound and stable gold and silver coinage, having a genuine desire to provide for the welfare and profit of our said lord and his lands, and wishing to do all in our power to increase trade, attract and retain merchants, and defend and preserve the common people from grief and harm. End quote. The needs of the common people themselves was thus at least stated as a factor in bringing about this closer union, and it had been made possible by the coming together of the representatives of the estates of the different provinces. Since they were now all using the same money, any attempt to change that money would have to be approved by all of them. It is in these early meetings that the beginnings of what would become known as the Estates General, a single body representing the people across all of the Low Countries, can be found. Most textbooks will tell you that the Estates General first came together a little bit later in 1464, in dramatic circumstances which we will get to soon enough. However, as written by Peter Spufford in Monetary Problems and Policies in the Burgundian Netherlands, quote, It was obviously more convenient for the Duke to deal with representatives from the estates of each territory gathered together in one place and at one time, than to attempt to reach identical bargains about the coinage by chaffering individually with the particular estates of the different provinces, end quote. Chaffering, by the way, great word, meaning to haggle. Arguably, the early days of the Estates General, which in the next century will become a revolutionary government structure, can therefore be found in these first meetings about the Fearlander, when representatives from the separate entities which made up Philip's lands got together to talk about these more mundane economic issues, which nevertheless had large repercussions for all of them. The sharing of these common interests would also make it more difficult in the future for foreign powers to try and play the individual provinces against one another. So that gives us an idea of some of the internal workings of the Burgundian state as we move forward into the final decades of Philip's long reign. It is now time to turn our attention to one of our favourite recurring topics, a good old-fashioned revolt in Flanders, and the last big one that Philip will have to deal with. In 1445, Philip needed money, and so he went to his fattest cash cow, Flanders, to get some. We know that Philip was holding pretensions to kingship, and that he personally equated himself with the other kings in Western Europe. When it came to the levying of taxes, the English king was buoyed by an overall sales tax on wool, and the French throne had indulged in the so-called gabelle since the mid-13th century, which was an overall sales tax on salt, one of the most in-demand products in Europe. 
Not only was salt important for its preservation qualities, you needed it to make all that herring last a long time, but this was still the 1400s, and there simply wasn't much else besides salt to give food any kind of kick. In mid-1447, Philip called the General Council of Ghent to assemble, having already softened up some powerful players over the course of the previous few years. The government of Ghent, as you may remember, was a combination of delegates from the three main different groups, being powerful workers, artisan guilds, and land-owning bourgeoisie. Philip laid it on thick and fast, and then he gave it even a little more of the thick. Quote, My good and faithful friends, you know how I have been brought up among you from my infancy. That is why I have always loved you more than the inhabitants of all my other cities, and I have proved this by acceding to all your requests. I believe then that I am justified in hoping that you will not abandon me today when I have need of your support. Doubtless, you are not ignorant of the condition of my father's treasury at the period of his death. The majority of his possessions had been sold, his jewels were in pawn. Nevertheless, the demands of a legitimate vengeance compelled me to undertake a long and bloody war, during which the defense of my fortresses and of my cities and the pay of my army have necessitated outlays so large that it is impossible to estimate them. You know, too, that at the very moment when the war on France was at its height, I was obliged, in order to assure the protection of my country of Flanders, to take arms against the English in Hanno, in Zeeland, and in Friesland, a proceeding costing me more than 10,000 salut d'or, which I raised with difficulty. End quote. Philip was still playing the benevolent and loving prince, beseeching the aid of his loyal subjects in his time of need, in what Blockmans and Prevenir call a, quote, rather thin argument, end quote, Philip was reminding them all of the duties he had undertaken on their behalf, that in regard to the three pillars of their relationship, justice, equity, and common good, he had upheld his obligation of maintaining the common good and protecting his subjects. Had he not even forgiven his father's killer for their benefit? After all, doing so had ended a conflict which had been hoisting a heavy tax burden on the Flemish. But, he argued, despite having made peace with the French king in the Treaty of Arras, the menace from France had continued. The subsequent need to defend Luxembourg, for instance, in order to defend Flanders and Brabant, of course, had also all taken its toll. Quote, In this way, my expenses continue to increase. All my resources are now exhausted. And the saddest part of it all is that the good cities and communes of Flanders, and especially the country folk, are at the very end of their sacrifices. With grief, I see many of my subjects unable to pay their taxes and obliged to emigrate. Nevertheless, my receipts are so scanty that I have little advantage from them. Nor do I reap more from my hereditary lands, for all are equally impoverished." A way must be found to ease the poor people, and at the same time to protect Flanders from insult, Flanders for whose sake I would risk my own person. Although to arrive at this end, important measures have become imperative. End quote. So that way, and those measures, as far as Philip saw it, involved levying a sales tax on salt, a gabelle. He told them that he would get the consent of all the other low country power brokers concerned, and if any of them did not give it, he would scrap the whole thing. But he wanted to get Ghent's approval first. Also, yeah, right, he's going to scrap the whole thing as soon as somebody says no. Anyway, the ball was now in the court of the Ghent magistracy. The Council of Ghent surprised him by refusing to entertain the idea at all. As mentioned last episode, Philip put a premium on maintaining stability in Ghent, which was largely achieved by ensuring that while there were more actual voices among the working class members, they held the majority, the urban bourgeoisie had an over-representation in the city's government. Since the unrest of 
Arterfelder Take 2 in the 1380s, this had somehow forged a reasonable pacification of the unruliness that was, it seems, a part of Ghent's fabric. When Philip left Ghent in 1447, having been denied the approval for assault tax, it was a bitter departure. He left the city behind, having discovered that his benevolent approach was not working, but had rather tugged at Ghent's thread of violent revolt. Over the ensuing two and a bit years, that thread would keep unraveling. To continue our marvellous run of random and disconnected metaphors, Philip at this point took off his hat of princely love and benevolence and donned the one he reserved for violent military suppression. And now it is time for us to don our hat of random ad break. We'll get into the details of that violent military suppression on the other side. Welcome back. Philip the Good determined that three particular deans of the guilds in Ghent had provocated and inflamed the resistance to his request among the wider magistracy, so he went to work trying to amend the political situation there to his favour. This consisted of haranguing and putting pressure on Ghent, as well as Bruges and people from the Frank of Bruges, all of whom showed a similar contempt for the proposed salt tax. In Ghent itself, he had his deputies harass citizens and openly tried to meddle in city appointments of the aldermen. The people of Ghent experienced the appearance of Burgundian soldiers prior to the municipal elections in 1449, and this really got up their goats. Everything culminated in 1450 at a meeting of the Estates of Flanders. At this meeting, Philip ranted against Ghent and then defied one of its fiercely guarded privileges and withdrew his bailiff, meaning that Ghent was left with no recourse for any judicial action. This was a massive slap in the face of the city's sense of independent rights, and we all know what happens when you slap a Flemish city in the face. By early 1451, everything had wound up so much that the guilds called a strike. The militia banners were raised, and the workers of Ghent armed themselves. So yeah, here we go again. My lord, the Flemish are revolting. The Estates of Flanders tried to mediate between the Duke and the people of Ghent, but within the city there was no going back. The election was popularly proclaimed null and void due to the Duke's manipulations. Anyone who studies political science will appreciate the next move that Ghent made, which was to relax their conditions for citizenry and therefore suffrage. Soon, one only needed to show lodging in a room to become a citizen, and this meant that the voter base for the more radical factions could grow. The re-held elections reflected this. The new government, which appointed three captains of the city, and oof, Rebellious captains of Ghent is a definite historical red flag, as we know. They also made stipulations that encouraged democratic participation. Every citizen must assemble at the Freidach Markt whenever the bells from the Belfort summon them to discuss and decide upon matters. The embassies that came forth from Ghent to negotiate with Philip were also pretty extreme in their approach. It was not long before they were threatening Philip with something which must have irked him greatly. If he did not stand down on the salt tax and maintain Ghent's privileges, they would go over his head. Philip may well have been removed from personal vassalage to Charles VII since 1435, but that did not make the people of Ghent afraid to entreat the French king to come to their aid against him. At around this time, Philip's entire focus came on to Ghent, leaving aside all the other issues he had, some of which we covered last week, such as in Luxembourg. Philip appreciated how volatile a prospect it was, the Flemish people encouraging French intervention in Flanders. Historian Ruth Putnam, writing in the first decade of the 20th century, said of this, quote, No act of rebellion? overt or covert, exasperated Philip more than this suggestion. End quote. 
Philip set about raising troops from all over his domains. He sought the explicit support of the other Flemish cities, wary of how quickly the result could spread. We all know that the relationships between the big Flemish cities were wrought with complicated emotional and economic baggage. On the one hand, most people in Flanders would have supported Ghent's stance against the loathed proposed salt tax, which at some stage Philip floated as possibly becoming a flower tax instead. However, if Ghent was to stand up against the ducal power, they might win and then achieve more rights and strength for themselves, which would be bad for the other cities. However, the other Flemish cities also didn't want to join in against the duke, given how he had so successfully quashed the earlier Bruges revolt and in Luxembourg had managed to retake the entire territory. The rest of Flanders largely sent Philip their nominal support. Some sent troops. By the end of May 1452, the Duke of Burgundy was once more preparing a siege on one of his Flemish cities. The Gentenaars had not just been hanging around, however, but had sallied forth to take some castles at Puca and Chavara and had laid siege to Aldenarder, bringing forth some absolutely massive pieces of artillery, including a cannon which apparently weighed 16 tons. Philip the Good had put Simon de Lelang in charge of Aldenada, and the town was well prepared with heavy artillery pieces themselves. The resulting exchanges of gunfire were apparently some of the heaviest Europe had seen up until that point. Belgium and heavy artillery battles. Name me a more iconic duo. We can only imagine what it must have been like for the townsfolk stuck inside the beleaguered city of Aldenada as this cacophony continued on and on. Speaking of beleaguered, by the way, that brings us to everybody's favourite segment and the reason you all listen to this show. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. The English word beleaguer comes from the Middle Dutch word belegeren, which means to put under siege. Not to be confused with the Dutch word belechen, which means ripened or matured. My favorite type of cheese is belechen kas, mature cheese. Ik belechen mijn belechen kas. I besiege my matured cheese. It's a great sentence. Anyway, beleaguered. Bet you didn't know that was Dutch. Back to Aldenarder. Philip's army arrived on the scene to try and break the siege and save the town. True to the founder of the most heralded chivalric order of the time, Philip's army was loaded with fancy knights. Jacques de Lelang, whom we mentioned previously for his fame and who had openly sought to fight 30 men before his 30th birthday was there. One of Philip's bastard sons, and arguably his favourite, Cornelius, was also there. So too was another son. In fact, Philip's only legitimate one, Charles the Count of Charolais. Charles was 17 years old when the fight took place. He will be the final of our four Burgundian dukes and he will oversee the disintegration of their dynasty in the years to come. Although we've spoken about him a little, we've never given him a proper introduction. So here goes. Charles was born in Dijon in 1433 and would be the only surviving child that Isabella and Philip had together. As the true heir to Philip's vast dominion, he was a golden child from the beginning. The first big day of his life was just his 20th, when his baptism included admission to the Order of the Golden Fleece. As Ruth Putnam pointed out, at this first ever session of the Order in Burgundy proper, Charles would not have even been able to hold his rattle, which one could assume might be the closest he could get to displaying his martial abilities. He definitely couldn't make any use of the golden collar presented to him. Nonetheless, as the history of the order recorded, quote, he was carried into the same room. There, the sovereign, his father, and the duchess, his mother, took the oath on his behalf. Afterwards, the duke put the collars upon all, end quote. Clearly, Charles was brought up in a world where he knew he was a prince, quite possibly the greatest prince of all time, a knight of the Golden Fleece at just 20 days old. Who else could claim such dignity? This, by the way, has been argued as marking a change in eras of medieval chivalric knighthood. 
At this point, proper fighting and noble knights were becoming fewer and fewer. Giving such an honor as a knighthood to a helpless baby was part of a general shift from it being something that one had to personally achieve, usually attained through doing deeds, to something one could get simply by being born. Philip was showing that knighthood could just be handed out willy-nilly to any high prince infant seen as exceptional enough. Philip himself had not become a knight until he was 25 years old. Charles spent much of his childhood wherever his mother was. She was extremely protective of him due to his high status and the fact that two siblings that preceded him had not survived infancy. Isabella played an important role in the governing affairs of Holland, which meant that Charles was raised a lot in The Hague and other northern Dutch cities. He grew into a robust, dark-featured, and intelligent boy, proficient in Latin and music. Also, as a literate and doted-upon prince, he had access to many of the ancient stories which glorified the deeds of earlier great princes, such as Alexander the Great and Charlemagne. The point of all this is that, in our run through the Burgundian dukes, Charles was the one born into the absolute peak of Burgundian power, and he would have felt it as naturally as the air that he breathed. One of the things, however, about being a high-born prince in the 1400s is that your first duty was as a political pawn. When he was just two years old, his father signed the Treaty of Arras with the French king, Charles VII, and one stipulation therein was that their children should be wed to seal the deal. At five years old, therefore, Charles was engaged to the second daughter of his royal namesake, a ten-year-old girl called Catherine. She was duly whisked off to be brought up alongside her chosen husband, to whom she was formally betrothed a year later. Charles was just seven years old in 1440 when his father made his triumphant yet joyous entry into Bruges following that city's failed uprising. Although his son was not present for the ridiculous display of demure yet celebratory esteem for the Burgundian Duke, Philip was so enamored by the performance put on for him by the city that he decided to call for his heir and daughter-in-law to be brought from Ghent. The following Sunday, the people of Bruges held many of the performances again, this time for their benefit. Witnessing this, Charles was old enough to know that the people of Bruges had been very naughty and that his father had punished them and that now they were bathing him as his father's heir in adoration and recognition of his family's supremacy over them all. In 1446, Catherine died from an acute case of living in the 1400s. Charles, now 13, became an eligible bachelor for the first time since he was five. By this point, he was very involved in many ceremonial functions and often accompanied his mother on political missions. Charles had been a baby when he was made a knight, and as he grew older, he did its service by displaying a keen interest in and inclination towards the military things for which knights are so well known. As we know, Philip often hosted tournaments for his court's pleasure. Charles grew up idolizing the men that he saw tilting against one another. He loved training, horseback riding, jousting, and as he reached his teen years, dreams of participating in all of them. When he was 17, he was finally allowed to participate in a tournament himself. However, it was decided that his medal should first be tested privately a few days prior to the more public event. A knight of renown should be chosen against whom Charles could be pitted. There was no knight of greater renown than our old mate, Jacques de la Lange. Arrangements were made for some jousting sticks, and a date was set for the two to clash. When they met to tilt in a park in Brussels, it was observed by a select group that included Charles's parents. On the first attempt, 
Young Charles shattered his lance on De La Lange's shield, which is pretty good jousting. Philip was apparently displeased that De La Lange was going easy on his son, and ordered that he desist from doing so. The next round, both jousters smashed their lances upon one another, and this was enough for Philip to be convinced that his son was ready and would not dishonor the family name. As for Charles's mother, who had spent most of the boy's life with him and was pretty protective, she thought De La Lange had gone too hard. This seems to have been a pattern. The 19th century historian Gachard first pointed out that between Charles's parents, quote, the one desired him to prove his manhood, the other was preoccupied with his safety, end quote. Having qualified himself, at least in his father's eyes, for participation in the tournament, Charles did not let the opportunity slip. Apparently, he broke more than 10 lances, he won awards from two princesses, and he had the heralds proclaiming Monjoy in his honour. I don't know much about jousting, but that sounds like a pretty good day out. It was shortly after this tournament that the main battles in the Ghent Uprising began, in 1452. When it became clear that there would be a violent confrontation, Charles was ready to fight. However, he was informed that his armour was not yet ready, and as such, he would not be a part of it. Instead, the young prince was to stay in the safety of the Brussels court. As Delamarche put it, in his usual adulation-laden manner, however, quote, He whose ambitions waxed, talking about the young Charles, swore by St. George, the greatest oath he ever used, that he would rather go in his shirt than not accompany his father to punish his impudent rebel subjects, end quote. When the Burgundian army came within the limits of Ghent, Around 6,000 of the city's armed and aggrieved militiamen came streaming out on the attack. For several hours, brutal combat took place around Audenarde and outside of Ghent. Thousands perished, mainly from the Gentenar side. There were some pretty serious hits on Philip's side, however, including the death of his favourite son, Cornelius. Young Charles, however, survived and was given accolades for his bravery and abilities in the battle. Despite this, Philip greatly mourned the loss of his Cornelius, and the bitterness of it meant that his stance towards Ghent grew ever less conciliatory. This battle was one of several that were waged during that year, until negotiations for peace were embarked upon. These quickly fell apart, as the people of Ghent could not accept Philip's harsh terms. So the war continued. Many beseechments were made that young Charles be removed from any more of the fighting. Charles had been raised as a prince and a knight of the Golden Fleece. He loved tournaments, was educated, and was pretty close to his mum. Isabella had often sought to protect him, whereas Philip had encouraged his toughening up. According to Monstrelet and Chastelaine, however, when it came to the Flemish uprising... Isabella insisted that this was a battle for his birthright and that he must continue to fight. The revolt and the war ended in July 1453. By now, Ghent had three garrisons on the approach of the Burgundian army, castled in the towns of Schendelbeek, Puka, and Chavre. Before moving on to Ghent itself, Philip had determined to take these places first. The first two were bombarded, taking two and four days to surrender, respectively. During the fight at Puka Castle, Jacques de la Lange, Philip the Good's favourite knight, was killed by cannon fire. When describing his death, Chastelaine says, quote, At the time, there was a cannoneer placed in one of the towers of the said fortress, who had aimed a vogler at the mantle of the bombard which was discharged at this evil time. To the once fired, the stone from this Vogler hit the pavis behind which was Sir Jacques de la Lange, and a splintered piece of wood, which had come from the right side of the pavis, was carried into his head, just under the ear, so that a corner of his head 
and a part of his brain was blown away, and he fell to the ground without any movement of his feet or arms. End quote. It's not exactly the most glorious end for the man who was arguably the most famous knight in the Low Countries, if not Europe, but hey, at least he died doing what he loved best, fighting. Philip was apparently so distraught when he discovered that Jacques de Lelang had died that when Puka Castle was finally taken, he had everybody found inside, hung from the walls, except for a couple of priests, a leper, and some kids. The Burgundian army started cannonading Khafra on the 18th of July, but unlike the previous two garrisons, the ones stationed there responded with heavy bombardment of their own. An artillery exchange resumed. The difficulty of taking Khafra was increased by the approach of a relief army marching from Ghent itself. Everybody prepared for a pitched battle. However, at some point, the gunners in Khafra suddenly abandoned their work and their posts, which ignited a fear and flight mentality amongst the whole rebel army. Many on that side began trying to flee, but with no artillery cover and fewer numbers than their opponents, they became easy pickings for Philip's army, who chased and slaughtered them in their thousands. It is believed that up to 20,000 people were killed in the course of this battle. The reason for the gunners in Khafra suddenly fleeing their posts must have been mysterious for those on the Burgundian side. Sources from Ghent solved the mystery, telling us that a spark flew towards one of their stocks of gunpowder, and, well, that's just poor gunpowder management. They pretty much blew themselves and their town's rebellious dreams sky high into oblivion. Ghent surrendered immediately following the self-exploding disaster and rout at Khafra. Philip had developed his strategy for dealing with rebellious towns using the joyous entry blueprint created after the Bruges Revolt. So the next year, a similar joyous entry of triumph was organized in Ghent, in which he could once again wear his hat of princely benevolence. In this ceremony, he, his son and heir Charles, and wife, the Duchess Isabella, were once more paraded through the city's sense of penance and pageantry. They were taken to lap up their family's dominance over the disruptive violence of Flemish workers' guilds. The fine levied on Ghent of £840,000 equaled the entire sum of money paid to the ducal coffers by the rest of Flanders combined over a total of three years. A lot. Further punishment included the stripping of judicial power from Ghent's aldermen, and that their sentences could be taken to appeal before a ducal court. He also essentially crippled the power of the craft guilds within the governing apparatus of the city. This was a huge thing. Symbolically, as well as embarrassingly, the banners of the guilds which called for the assembly of their militias, were required to be given to Philip. These banners were to be presented by the repentant aldermen and the deans of the guilds, publicly, barefoot, their heads shaved, and on their knees, before their forgiving but conquering duke. This was a humiliating defeat for Ghent, but it could have been much worse. Philip had been advised to burn it to the ground, to finally rid himself of this most recalcitrant town, which so routinely went into revolt. However, he chose not to. When asked if he was going to destroy it, he apparently replied, quote, If I was to destroy this city, who is going to build me one like it? End quote. So Ghent was spared the full wrath of Burgundian revenge, which other places in the Low Countries most definitely will not in the upcoming two decades. But also, due to the enormity of the fines, the gabel, the salt tax, was never imposed. Sure, 
going against it had probably cost way more than they would have had to pay if they just accepted it. But still, you need to take the little moral victories. So we will leave it here today. Philip the Good was still at the height of his powers. After all, following this revolt, he will go and have his magnificent feast of the pheasant and bid vows on all sorts of birds. He had instituted administrative changes across the many different domains of the Low Countries in an attempt to create a more centralized rule. The territories which he ruled were being melded closer together with a bureaucracy from on high imposing changes below, sometimes to their pleasure, such as the monetary reform, but more often in ways that were met with grumbles. When challenged, he tried his best to come up with diplomatic resolutions, but when pressed, he was not afraid to use his overwhelming force to suppress extremely unsettling revolts that threatened the stability of his entire regime. Not only had he managed to tighten his grip and expand upon his power, but he now had a son and heir, Charles, who had proven himself to be a worthy knight of the Golden Fleece and whose succession to Philip's titles seemed a simple matter. But nothing in life is that simple, and we will explore the transitory years from Philip to Charles in the next episode of History of the Netherlands. Thank you very much. We hope you're enjoying the series so far. Please remember to review us on Apple Podcasts because although we were very proud of our one-star review that we got that said I was too excited, which is true, I am definitely too excited, It is staring us in the face, so please get on board and give us at least a two or three or four or even five-star review. We'd love you for it. If you're in the Netherlands during this year that has no travel and you are interested in the idea of taking, say, a History of the Netherlands private tour with us, please let us know. We haven't made any solid plans yet. We're just putting feelers out, pokers in the fire, seeing whether anyone out there is keen. So just email info at republicofamsterdamradio.com and let's have a chat and see if there are any ways that we can help you explore this country. And then lastly, we'd like to announce our newest members of the Order of the Golden Patreon Pledge, Keith Brown, Brownie, you absolute legend, also known as Jono. Also, David Gould, Gouldy. What can we say? Gouldy, 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 Gouldy. Four times. Thank you very much for checking in, becoming a part of this country, and then a part of this podcast. That should be it for now. We'll be back next time with more of History of the Netherlands. Doei! Thanks for listening to History of the Netherlands. You can get detailed show notes at our website, historyofthenetherlands.com. From there, you'll be able to find other podcasts and projects that we've created. This is a production of Republic of Amsterdam Radio. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.